Marion, shut your eyes. Don't look. Don't look. It's not a good thing. Let me, let me make some of you real nervous. That was in 1981. 1981. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, Hollywood uh, takes a lot of liberties with things. They sometimes change the details and stuff. They change the sequences. They change it to fit their need to make a movie. But I'll have to give it to George Lucas and Steven Spielberg regarding this because as far as we know, this is what the Ark of the Covenant looked like. Very close, as far as we can tell from the description we have. And this morning, we're going to look at David's encounter with the Ark of the Covenant. For those of you who have been with us for a number of weeks, you know our, we're working through the life of David and trying to learn from his great experiences as well as his poor decisions, his mistakes. And so we're trying to see how God used the man after God's own heart. And this morning, we're going to continue with that. Because this morning, the theme we're working on is that details matter to God. Details matter to God. And before we look at David's experience, we need to go a little further back in the Old Testament to the book of Exodus. So even though our primary scripture is 2 Samuel 6, you might want to put your finger there and go ahead and turn to Exodus 25, starting in verse 10. As we look at what God wanted to do and how he told them to do to make this and the significance of the Ark of the Covenant. Now remember, the Ark came to the Jews when God was giving them a plan for the tabernacle. They had left Egypt after 400 years of being under Pharaoh's bondage. They had left Egypt. They had gotten to Mount Sinai. They had received the tablets, the Ten Commandments, and they had, were asked to accept a covenant between them. He wanted to make an agreement with these people, kind of a renewal from the agreement he had with Abraham. And then he gives them a plan about how they would worship him. And they would do it in a tabernacle or a tent. And he'd be moving around as they traveled. But the centerpiece of the tabernacle, the centerpiece of their worship, was the Ark of the Covenant. So in verse 10 of chapter 25 in Exodus, it reads this way. Have them make a chest of acacia wood, two and a half cubits long, which is about 45 inches, a cubit and a half wide, 27 inches, and a cubit and a half high, also 27 inches. Overlay it with pure gold, both inside and out, and make a gold molding around it. Cast four gold rings for it and fasten them to its four feet with two rings on one side and two rings on the other. Then make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Insert the poles into the rings of the sides of the chest to carry it. The poles are to remain in the rings of this ark. They are not to be removed. Then put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. Verse 17, make an atonement cover of pure gold, two and a half cubits, again, 45 inches long, and a cubit and a half wide, 27 inches. And make two cherubim, cherubim, which are angels, by the way, 
I know most of you know that, but just in case. Make two cherubim out of hammered gold at the ends of the cover. Make one cherubim on one end and the second cherubim on the other. Make the cherubim of one piece with the cover at the two ends. The cherubim are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover with them. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. Place the cover on top of the ark and put in the ark of the testimony, which I will give you. There, above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you and give you all my commandments for the Israelites. And then God gives them a whole list of instructions as to how he wanted them to build the tabernacle and how he would furnish the tabernacle. This creator God that we have and that they had is a God of details. I mean, look at the universe around us, the intricacies of of nature, the things that grow as well as how our bodies function. Just that alone makes it pretty obvious that God is aware of details. And then he's got a few planets that he strode among the universe as well. Now, inside this ark was a trio of the most precious of Hebrew artifacts. Three things. There was a gold jar of unspoiled manna. Now, you'll remember manna is that stuff that showed up every morning. And they went out and gathered it. Some kind of green goo. We're not really sure what it was. And they weren't sure how to describe it either. But this manna was there every day. Interesting thing, it only lasted for the day. The next day, if you hadn't eaten yours, it was spoiled the next morning. So they learned that quickly. But the other interesting thing about how God takes care of us and takes care of his people is that on the Sabbath, he provided and manna did not spoil so they didn't have to work and they could actually rest because the manna they had already acquired. God is a God of details. A second thing that was in the Ark of the Covenant the ark of God, was Aaron's staff. There was a time when there was a lot of challenging going on among the people of Israel, and God took Aaron's staff and used it as an example of that he was in in charge and that Aaron was to be his priestly leader for the children of Israel. And this staff actually budded long after it had been acquired as a staff. And so that was the second thing. There was a staff. And the third thing were the stone tablets. Think about that. These tablets had had felt the very finger of God carving the Ten Commandments on them, the things he had given them to live by. So those were the three articles in the Ark of the Covenant. And God was very much wanting to make a statement to them with symbolism. And that's why he gave them those, the manna, was God's symbol of, symbolic of God's provision. The staff was a symbol of God's power. The commandments were a symbol of God's precepts. And then most of all was the very presence of God that would inhabit the ark in the tabernacle. Now, it is impossible to overstate the significance of the ark. It represented the covenant between God and his people, God and Israel. God's promise to be their God and their obligation to be his people. And yet, later, centuries later, after it was captured by the Philistines, 
the Israelites recovered it, and then they put it in the house of Abinadab, seven miles out of Jerusalem, and it sat there for 20 years. The symbol of the covenant between God and his people, and they just let it sit at some guy's house for 20 years. They had forgotten. But here comes David, and David decides it's time for a change. So now we're in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And you may want to keep that open this morning as we break this apart. 2 Samuel chapter 6. When we arrive here in our study of David, he's engaged in preparations for a major event. So in verse 1, David again brought together out of Israel chosen men, 30,000 in all. He and all his men set out from Bala of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim and the ark. Now, don't miss this. 30,000. He put out a call to 30,000 men to show up. This was a big deal. This was a big deal for, for Israel. This was a big deal to David about honoring God. This was a huge project for him in the country. And now David, as the king, was free to bring this thing home. It was also called the glory, the glory of God. And the glory had departed from Israel when it was captured, and they were about to bring the glory back to Israel. This was big. The ark represented the covenant between God and Israel. God's promise to be their God and their obligation, their agreement to be his people. What David was about to do was the most important thing that had happened since he was anointed to be the king of Israel. David wanted to get this thing done. He was anxious. He said, let's go. Let's pack it up. Let's, to quote the cable guy, let's get her done. I mean, he wanted this to happen, didn't he? But in his speed, in his, inner, in his urgency to get it done, some things were overlooked. There were very specific directions about how to move the ark. God had not only told him how to build it, where to put it, and how to approach it. He had also told him, when it's time to move the tabernacle, I want it done thus and so. This is the way I want you to do it. So there were to be several layers of coverings. It wasn't to be exposed. It was to be covered up, several layers. It was to be carried only by priests. Joe and Fred that swept up after things were over at worship, they didn't get to carry it around. The priests were to carry it. Using poles attached to the ark. And even though the, fair, the priests got to carry it, they didn't get to touch it. They carried it by the poles. And then the last thing was the ark was not to be touched. Very important to our story today. The ark was not to be touched. And no one was to look inside. You know, in the movie when they lifted the lid off, ooh, that would have been bad. You couldn't look inside, even for a moment, or you would die. Verse 3, they set the ark of God on a new cart. Do you see that? They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahau, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart and the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. 
David and all Israel were celebrating with, their might, with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, cisterns, and cymbals. Now, let me pause right here. I had not intended to, but look at all this stuff up here. Makes a lot of noise, doesn't it? Think about 30,000 people with noisemakers, rhythm band instruments, beating and clanging because they were celebrating. Just thought I'd, that's an editorial for the moment. When they came to the thresh, threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark because the ark stumbled. You see it coming? It's on a cart. The sons of Abinadab are walking with it. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. The music stopped. The praise stopped. People were stunned and frightened. Uzzah was on the ground. Uzzah was dead. The Lord had moved, and a man was dead. Hundreds of years before, the instructions had been laid down. Those instructions were known. Those instructions weren't really forgotten by everyone. And though he meant well, Uzzah should have known this. He was a priest of some sort, a descendant of Aaron. He had grown up with the ark in his father's house. And though he had been around it his whole life, maybe that was the problem. Maybe the sacred had become a, had become a common thing for him. Maybe the presence of the holy had been kind of humdrum for him. Let's just load up the cart and get this thing moving because the king wants it in Jerusalem. So we'll just go. Take the path of least resistance. It is a new cart, by the way. The, cov the convenient became the substitute for the correct way. But God shows up on his terms, not ours. We may think and convince ourselves we have a lot better way of doing something. But when God outlines it, makes it very clear, that's the way he wants it. And Scripture doesn't give us an explanation as to God's anger. But it was there because it says it. Now, for some, we might be troubled. Some in this room, maybe I know people who are unbelievers would be troubled by the fact that God didn't explain himself. But he... <laughs> With all due respect, he doesn't have to explain himself. He is not answerable to me. He is not answerable to us. The reasons for his actions are often hidden for us, and he does not need our approval. And I did not hear a single amen in the room. He does not need our approval. Amazing, isn't it? Hey, good. Much better. Thank you, Tom. How... You see, what happened to Uzzah may also be an indicator of whether you accept that or not. So consider that this morning. Am I comfortable with the idea that God is God, period, and he does not have to explain himself to me? Verse 8, then David was angry. David didn't like it. Because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah, and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah, which means outbreak against Uzzah. That's what Perez 
signifies. It was kind of a monument spot to how it didn't go well. David was afraid of the Lord that day, though. You notice he'd said he was angry, but he was afraid. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. So instead, he put it in the house, or he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. So it's pretty cool to have the ark sitting in your house. It'll bless everybody around you. It'll bless your mama, your daddy. I mean, everybody had it. Was, that was a good house to be in. David's anger was that God's anger had been aimed at Uzzah. And so he was confused. He didn't understand what just happened. He thought he was doing what God w- would have wanted to happen. And though David was afraid of the Lord that day, he still loved and he still trusted him. He didn't turn his back on God. He still loved him. God, because God still loved David and God still loved Israel, but he was upset that they had ignored his instructions. And so that seems a little extreme, though, doesn't it? I mean, you kill the guy? Really? We don't get that in our culture today. We want everybody to like us or to love us. Surely God wanted Israel to still love him. Well, yes. We want our children to love us too, don't we? But sometimes we equate our children loving us with we have to be their friend. So I'm going to make a rash statement. Our kids don't need to be our friends. Our children need to be their ch- our children. And we take responsibility. And sometimes we avoid discipline because we need our children's approval. And we're concerned we won't get it. Now, just like you and I, I, just like you have as a parent through the years, I made a lot of mistakes raising my children. Oh, so many mistakes I made. But the other side of that is I loved them unconditionally. No matter what was going on, I never ceased loving them. But I never tried to parent them fearing that they would stop loving me either. I just assumed they were going to continue to love me. And so however I decided or we decided discipline needed to go, we did it. Without fearing they were going to turn their backs on us. Because, to say it again, I was their parent. I wasn't their buddy. And there's a difference. So to bring that to here this morning, God loves you no matter how bad you mess up. You can come to him no matter what because he never quits loving you. No matter what evil or poor decision you think you've ever made, he never stops loving you. So when the guy says, I've got to fix my life before I can come to God, he's misunderstanding the whole principle. God is how we fix our lives. We don't do it on our own. And friend, if you're holding stuff, holding on to things that you think God, because God's not happy with, that you can't come to him, you can't ask him, you can't pray to him, you can't honor him, then you've misunderstood God. Because God loves you no matter what. He loves mankind no matter what. He's not always happy with us, but he always loves us.
He will discipline us when we need it, and he will not apologize when we don't understand what he does. So, three months pass. The ark remained at Obed-Edom. His house is blessed. God smiled on his eight sons and his descendants, and they were all happy, happy campers. So in verse 12, now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. So we can only assume that David was sitting around trying to figure out how am I going to get the ark to Jerusalem? I know this is the right thing. How am I going to get it there? I'm a little nervous about God. And then he gets this news that God is blessing. So he calls for the event planners and he says, we're going to have a party, let's celebrate, and let's go get the ark. However, at this time, things would be different. Verse 13, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. So here we go. Six steps and a sacrifice. Six steps and a sacrifice. Six steps and a sacrifice. Now, we don't know how long it took, but I guarantee you it was more than an hour and a half, right, to go those, those miles. It's kind of like what we used to do when we graduated from high school. Do you remember that? Or at a wedding, we would go one. Um, remember doing that? How many of you practiced that way in high school? Nobody? Come on. Did anybody practice? Okay. See, we got a few believers out. Yeah, there used to be, we're going to take our time. Have you been to a graduation lately? It's just like, you know, give me that thing. I want to get out of here. Our wedding, same thing. It takes about three or four seconds to get from that door up to here because we're anxious. God's not anxious. God's not in a hurry. And David kind of, you know, touched the hot stove once. He decided this time he would take his time and do it right. And so they honored God literally, one, literally steps at a time. They took time to honor God with each step. Verse 14, wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. Now, this is the, this is the uh, in this section of Scripture is where we've come to think that David got naked and jumped around in the road. That's a coarse way of saying it, but he didn't actually completely take all his clothes off. He dropped his kingly robe, and he had something that you might call a, t-shirt, a big T-shirt on underneath. I mean, he still had clothes on, but he got rid of the robes probably because they weighed a lot, And he became dancing around. He started dancing around with joy before the Lord. The warrior king dropped all the trappings of royalty, and he celebrated like a child before his father. His joy before the Lord reminds us that there's plenty of room for us to be more exuberant in our own worship. We stayed folks on Sunday morning, don't want to, Hardly turn to the left or to the right sometimes, do we? Uh, A few of you were clapping earlier. That's very encouraging. Some of you say, well, I don't know how to clap. Okay, find another way. But it's okay for us to enjoy being in the presence of the Lord together. And sometimes our holding back, sometimes, you know, I don't know what to do. I 
kind of, sometimes that's more about, I'm afraid somebody will look at me funny. Our pride gets in the way. Or our experiences get in the way. What we were brought up to do in church, you know. You remember when they used to take people out of church that went to dances on Saturday night? Have you ever heard that before? There are churches that used to vote people out for going to the pool hall. I'm telling you, we sometimes are looking at some things and missing the point. God wants us to love him back. That's why he wants to spend time with us. That's why he gave us his word. That's why we used to talk a lot about having a quiet time and spending time with God. And we probably don't talk about that enough because he just wants our attention. Now, these people were celebrating with shouts and with instruments. The king and the, whole, the, and the whole family of God gathered there together, rejoicing as they brought the ark of the Lord to Jerusalem. And so as this amazing procession approaches, though, kind of like a Hollywood movie, the, shift, the scene shifts, and suddenly we're taken up to a window where there's an observer And in verse 16, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. The ark of the Lord was coming into the city. Michael saw her husband David making what she considered a spectacle of of himself. How undignified, how embarrassing, no dignity. No royal dignity. Conduct unbecoming of a king. But you see, her attitude represented the past. Her father, Saul, was a king who was not involved with his people. And her father, Saul, was also a king who was not not involved with his God. So she had a particular view of what a king should be or look like. Verse 17, they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites. Both men and women and all the people went to their homes. After 20 years, the ark was in its place. They offered sacrifices. David blessed everyone to help return and by involve, that was involved with returning the ark. He gave gifts of food. And peace and contentment dwelled in their homes. It had been a great day for David. A great moment as he began to be the king. And then he comes home. And he gets a different perspective about the events of the day. In verse 20, when David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. Can you imagine the sarcasm that was probably there? I probably read that too fast. It was probably more like, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today. Can't you just hear it dripping? Because she wanted to make a point. She wanted David to hear what she had to say. And in verse 21, 
David responded. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people, Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. And then he goes on. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael's daughter of Saul had no children to the day of her death. I think it's important to note in Scripture, Michael is referred to as the daughter of Saul, not as the wife of David. Michael came out to let him know how she felt about this sorry spectacle of a king jumping around in the middle of the street. See, she had a different view of what a king should be and how a king should look and how a king should behave. And this wasn't it, was it? Dignity, power, splendor, those were all very important to the daughter of Saul. But David knew who the real king was. The real king was the Lord God Jehovah. David was willing to make himself nothing. He was willing to take on the form of a servant, just as somebody from his house and lineage would do later. A fellow by the name of Jesus would make himself like a servant centuries later. The humility of Christ would take him to the cross. He was also stripped of his respectable clothing. And he was also mocked by those in power. So this was a foretelling of something that was going to happen centuries ahead. You know, you and I have to be careful about the temptation of going after honor and dignity and status for ourselves. Because it will cause us to leave other people behind or to the side. Because we're concerned about how we and who we should be. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 3, which I read a bit of earlier before we prayed. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another... Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by being obedient, or by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So I guess the question is, how has your service and your obedience been to him? Because that's what our time together is always about, a time for us to reflect on who we are and how we are and what we are, rather than what they should be and they should be and they ought to be, but it's at first about me. The God of the details covered you with his love and provided a detailed plan for eternal life for us. David's eyes were on the Lord. Michael's eyes were on other people. 
Are we more concerned about how the world views us or how we appear before him? Because God loves us unconditionally, and that's all he would like to see from us is our loving him unconditionally. Because the best proof of our love is for our, uh, the best proof of our love for our Lord is with our obedience. With our obedience. God loves us, his children, so he will discipline us. Therefore, if we love our children, we should be prepared to discipline them. God, or David, pleased God with his worship. Therefore, we should approach worship with the desire to please and satisfy what God wants. God has given us a way to live, a way to honor him, a way to thrive. Therefore, following God's instructions are the details will put us on the path of how our lives should go. So for all of us, are we paying attention to the details of God? Are we being obedient to the will of God in our lives? Are we more concerned about how someone else should be living and we miss how we should be living? Are we more understanding of a lot of other things while we're overlooking the issues we have in our lives? Are we missing the details of God? Are we going to prove ourselves to be well done, good and faithful servants? Because we listened and we trusted and we believed. David is a remarkable person in the Bible. There is more that has been written about David's life than any other individual in the, in the Bible. There's a lot of information there. And because of that, you and I see the good, the bad, and the ugly. But it's there for you and I to learn from and to be better through the good and the bad and the ugly. What might God be saying to you through his word today? I don't know. But we'll offer an invitation here in a moment. And as we sing the words, here's my heart, Lord, I pray they will actually be the desire of your heart, that you really want to let him have your full attention, that you really want him to have his way and will in your life. And these moments in here, this 11 o'clock hour that we've observed together, won't just be that one chapter in a week and then we set it in the drawer and then we don't let it Involve, get involved in the rest of our week because the point of our worship after worshiping him the opportunity we have this morning the times we have in Bible study the things we do on this campus on a Sunday morning are about being better as we go forward this week not to just have learned some really cool things for our own edification but we put that to work as we go from place to place and we meet the people we know and we, people we work with, people we're friends with, the neighbors that we have, the encounters that we have, that our lives will be different before them all the time or more often because of what God has said in these moments. So that's why we offer an invitation, to give you time to think about it. And this morning, if you've been looking for a church home, 
we would encourage you to consider being a part of friendship. If you've never met Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, love to explain how that can happen if you're not sure. If there are things in your life that separate you from God's will and you believe it's because you can't fix it because you don't know how, I want you to know that the loving God of the universe offered his son on a cross, bled, suffered, and died to give you and you and you an opportunity. Again, because he loved you. Even before the foundations of the world. Would you stand with me? As we sing in just a moment, I would encourage you to consider coming to pray or to do whatever you think God is calling you to do. And now, Father, we ask your will in this place, in these moments, that singing, Here's My Heart, Lord, will be a reality of our minds and hearts that we will truly give you the attention, focusing our lives on you. Because you loved us first, we can love you in return. Because you sacrificed first, we can be willing to sacrifice our service, our time, our talents, our treasure to be better people, to be closer to you, to walk in a way that honors you. I pray, Father, this morning that in these moments that this will be the reality of our life that you truly truly are in charge so speak now Father in Jesus name we pray Amen